This podcast may include adult content. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have four stories. Delivery by Kathy Fish, Girl on the Floor by Thomas Kearns, The Smallest of Offerings by Susie Weiss, and Mario's Three Lives by Matt Bell. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts. Delivery, written and read by Kathy Fish. Listening time, 2 minutes, 38 seconds. Delivery. The doorbell rang. It was an older gentleman wearing a tuxedo, a bundle in his arms. Here, he said, handing it over. It's a baby, Mabel said. Its wee mouth gaped, emitting an odd, churring sound like a hummingbird. The man smiled. A newborn, he said. She held the bundle out in front of her. The swaddling came loose. The infant burped. I was expecting a vintage radio. I didn't order this. We had to make a substitution. I don't even like babies. The whole motherhood thing. Mabel shuddered. And yet? The thing was unwieldy. Mabel held it out to the man. It slipped out of its blankets and fell to the floor. Mabel and the tuxedo gentleman stared. The infant yowled. Are you going to pick it up? Mabel asked. I don't think so. The man clasped his hands behind his back, yawed to the right and to the left like a metronome. The infant screamed. Mrs. Yardley, Mabel's next-door neighbor, stared from the sidewalk. Her annoying little dog, Huntley, yapped. Is there a problem? Mrs. Yardley called, but got no response. Oh, for God's sake, Mabel said. She picked up the baby and hoisted it over her shoulder. This is obviously a mistake. I'm very good with babies, Mrs. Yardley called, a little louder. The man turned and held his hand up to her. All's well here, he said. Just a little adjustment phase. It's quite normal. Go on about your business. Mabel patted the infant on the bottom, bounced on her knees, swung from side to side. Still it cried, its damp cheek against her own. The man in the tuxedo was saying something, but it was difficult to make out. I should get a what? A nine-volt battery? Is that what you said? Come back here. The man was already down the steps and unlatching the gate. He turned and smiled. Well, he said, enjoy. The infant settled lumpily against Mabel's breast. You smell like oatmeal, Mabel said. She pinched its nose and twisted it. You are not a vintage radio. Not even close. Kathy Fish's stories have appeared or will appear in Night Train, Quick Fiction, Smoke Long Quarterly, Frigg, Spork, Denver Quarterly, and elsewhere. She loves her four children very much. Girl on the Floor, written by Thomas Kearns, read by Anne Rushton. Listening time, 4 minutes 45 seconds. Girl on the Floor. 
There is a girl on the floor in the kitchen. She is angry. The hard linoleum hurts her shoulder blades and the back of her head, but this is not why she is angry. Her boyfriend bowed his head and slinked away after she earlier accepted a dare to kiss another girl. The party celebrating the end of finals rambles on outside the kitchen. The girl, whose name is Corey, catches a glimpse of what she is missing each time the swinging door murmurs to a close. At first, people exchanged pleasantries or joking comments with her. She felt a little odd talking back, her voice projecting to the white popcorn ceiling above her. But hardly anyone has spoken to her lately. What is amusing for five minutes becomes tiresome when done for over an hour. The party's hostess, Rita, had come in after some of Corey's friends had finished their varying tactics to get her off the floor. There's no telling what's down there, Rita said. You know I'm not the best housekeeper. Can I wash my hair when I get up? Corey asked. When will that be? Rita kept her back to Corey. She chipped ice for another drink. When Michael admits it was no big deal. You're going to need to wash more than your hair if you wait that long. Is he still outside? He's with Doug. He was Corey and Michael's best friend. If Corey ever considered leaving Michael, she would have to admit to herself he would choose Michael over her. Corey stiffened her body. She tilted her head back slightly so a different part of her skull rested against the linoleum. She sighed. Rita stopped just before the swinging door to turn around and look down at her. Maybe to him it was a big deal. Think about that. Corey nodded, her head rocking back and forth on the floor. She was hungry. Lying on the floor, she hopes Doug will come talk to her. She knows Michael will not come. She knew the moment she plunked her beer on the table and took her position on the floor. This is part of the lesson. It would be a lesson Michael learned as each person risked a pitying glance at him, the boyfriend of the girl on the floor. Corey tilts her head to see Doug enter through the swinging door. We're leaving soon, he says, and sits in a chair beside her. His right foot rests on the ground just inches from one of her clenched fists. Corey feels an urge to grab his ankle or his leg. She craves a tangible connection to another human being. How soon? Michael had driven the three of them to the party. Doug takes a swallow of beer and looks down at her. His lips flatten and his eyebrows knit together. Corey understands. They are waiting on her. Has Michael said anything? Nothing I'm going to repeat. What is everybody else saying? I've been with Michael. No one talks about you in front of him. Corey frowns and closes her eyes. When he isn't with her, Michael spends his time with Doug. She sometimes jokes that Michael should be dating him. It wasn't a big deal, she says. You know that. Doug pauses midway through his sip of beer. He looks at her, and something passes between them. I know, he says. Why does a kiss always have to mean something? She looks up at him, head still against the linoleum. Because it's two people, he says. It's two people who want to become one. Not always. Well, not when someone's looking. 
Corey opens her mouth to speak, but does not. When Doug offers her his hand, she takes it. She grabs her beer from where she left it on the table. He tells her it's warm. She sips it anyway. Rita enters through the swinging door, and her eyes pop with delight. She says, Rise and shine, princess. As the kitchen door wavers before her, Corey sees Michael in the living room. She sees his face soften with sadness and love. She stands beside Doug. Michael looks at both of them, or one of them. Corey can't tell. The end. Thomas Kearns is a 30-year-old author and photographer from Tyler, Texas. His fiction has appeared in over a dozen publications, including Blythe House Quarterly, Smoke Lung Quarterly, and Flashquake. He is an Eagle Scout. The Smallest of Offerings, written and read by Susie Weiss. Listening time, 5 minutes, 9 seconds. The Smallest of Offerings. She dips her hands into the hot dishwater, savoring the warmth, the contrast with the cold air in the house. The thermostat is set at 65 degrees, just one of the many compromises that have littered the path of their seven-year marriage. Grabbing one of the plates submerged under the suds and wiping it clean with a sponge, she listens to the man noises coming from the living room. A clearing of the throat, a loud thud as one shoe is dropped onto the hardwood floor, and then another. A burst of cheers as the TV turns on. She can't decide whether these sounds are better or worse than the silence that swept through their house last night after he'd stormed out in the middle of yet another argument. This time, there is no prospect of compromise. He wants to accept a job offer on the West Coast, and she can't give in to leaving the life she's created for them in Baltimore. The house, the circle of friends, her part-time job. Short of living three time zones apart, someone will have to give in. It's not going to be me this time, she thinks, listening to the noise from the TV. During lunch, they'd sat silently on either end of the table, like two worn-out boxers before the final round of a bout. In the past, she would have made another attempt at negotiation by now, trusting there was a resolution, even if it wasn't readily apparent. This time, however, she kept silent. Something has changed. She no longer believes in the payback. She's begun to suspect that some of her divorced friends are right. It's just not worth the effort of trying over and over to negotiate every common step. She dips the plate into the rinse water and places it on the drying rack. She doesn't mind not having a dishwasher, prefers it even. In the old days, he helped by drying the dishes, and she liked the closeness of the two of them in the narrow galley kitchen, his body brushing deliberately against her backside whenever he passed her. Even though it's been years since he helped, she still feels her most sensuous in front of the sink, the fresh smell of dishwashing soap, the feel of warm water against her hands, the sight of changing seasons outside the window over the sink. As she looks out the window, a sudden movement in the cherry tree in the middle of the patchy lawn catches her eye. A gray shape, the tip of a furry tail, twitches behind one of the branches bare from the beginnings of winter. A squirrel appears as if magically morphed from the tree's branches. His movements, for some reason she's decided it's a male, are jerky, 
almost like a series of spasms, reminding her of the flipbook drawings she and her brother drew as children. Each page was slightly different than the previous, and when she flipped them, it looked like the figure was moving in fits and spurts. She watches the squirrel crawl along the branch, stopping above the new bird feeder she hung out that morning, a cylinder with a circular perch on the bottom for the birds to eat the seeds from four small openings. The birds have given the squirrel wide berth and are nowhere to be seen. She bought a squirrel-proof feeder, but the squirrel clearly doesn't know this. He extends his paw, then steps down and balances on top of the feeder. Then he crawls upside down until his snout is only a few inches from one of the openings. As he pushes his face towards the bird seed, his weight drives down the perch, snapping the opening shut, nearly hitting his nose. He jerks back so quickly that he loses his balance and falls to the ground, flipping backwards and landing on all fours. She laughs out loud at the squirrel's antics, her hands motionless in the dishwater. He stands still for a second, then dashes back up the tree. Again, his tail twitches to keep his balance as he creeps across the branch and hovers over the bird feeder. Again, he leans down, this time from a different angle, but with exactly the same results. And then again, he crawls back up the tree trunk. His persistent antics are at the same time funny and hypnotic. She can't keep her eyes off of him as he climbs the trunk for the fourth time, making her wonder how an animal could so relentlessly try to do the same thing over and over again. It seems terribly dim-witted of this creature to think he'll finally succeed, to keep attempting the impossible. And yet she is strangely touched by his persistence, as if he possessed a deep-seated faith, a fervent belief that despite repeated failure, he will eventually be bigger than the problem in front of him. The dishwater now feels lukewarm, half of the dishes still lying in the now sudsless water. She pulls a towel from a hook on the wall, wipes her hands, and walks towards the living room. It will be the smallest of offerings, a mere nod of recognition towards something they once had, but at that moment, it's all she can give. Halfway to the living room, she calls out, just loud enough to be heard over the sound of the TV, come look, I want to show you something. Susie Weiss's fiction is forthcoming in the Connecticut Review and Writers in the Attic. She holds an MA in fiction writing from Johns Hopkins University and is working on a novel. Mario's Three Lives, written by Matt Bell, read by Mark Rushton. Listening time, 6 minutes, 29 seconds. Mario's Three Lives, by Matt Bell. The plumber has three lives left, or else he is already dead. Maybe he leaps across the gorge with ease, flying high through the air to land safely on the other side. The jump is simple, because he's able to check the edge several times, waiting until he is sure of his footing. Or else it's impossible, because on this world, there is an invisible hand pushing him forward, speeding him along, forcing him to leap before he's ready. If that happens, then the plumber is going to die. Otherwise, he continues his quest, sprinting and jumping to hit the blocks with his head and turtles with his ass. The blocks contain either money or food, gold coins or else mushrooms and flowers he can devour to grow bigger or stronger. Sometimes they make him fly and shoot fireballs from his fingertips. Of course, 
he does not actually eat anything. The closest they ever come to an orifice is when he jumps up and lands on them with his ass, just like he does to the turtles. He eats with his ass. He kills with his ass. His ass is a multi-purpose tool. Why do I have a mouth, he thinks, if I never speak or eat with it? He wonders if it's this way for everyone, but there's nobody to ask. The only people he knows are the princess, who's been abducted, and his brother, who is always missing, but who the plumber knows would carry on his quest if he should fail. The plumber always dies with the same surprised look on his face, his mouth hanging open as he flies upward through the air before being born again at the beginning of the world. He's tiny and frightened without his mushrooms and his fireballs, desperately banging his head against blocks, looking for more. Sometimes, between reincarnations, the plumber thinks he senses God trying to decide whether to give him another chance or to just bag the whole thing. He's scared then, but who wouldn't be? He prays for continuation, and then God says continue, and the music plays. That means the plumber will live again. Back in the world, he realizes that the God he senses between deaths is there when he's alive too, guiding his motions. His triumphs are God's triumphs, but so are his failures. It bothers him that God can fail, but he doesn't show it. He is a stoic little plumber, looking for mushrooms and jumping on turtles. He is not a philosopher, or at least not until after the princess is safe, and he has the time to think things through. Still, sometimes when he's alive and running, or, heaven forbid, swimming, he realizes that the God who continues is possibly not the only God there is. Surely that God isn't the one who put all the collapsing platforms and strange angry wildlife everywhere. At first he thinks it's the Turtle King, the one who captured the princess and started him on this whole adventure. But then he thinks, who made the Turtle King? Not God, or at least not his God. Does this prove the existence of the devil? He doesn't know. The plumber stomps the tiny mushroom-headed foes who wobble towards him, trying to kill him, but succeeding only if he's completely careless. He bounces from one head to another, crushing a whole troop of them without touching the ground once. He is an efficient weapon, and these lowliest of enemies are no more than an inconvenience. Crawling through a maze of green pipes, the plumber realizes that he doesn't believe the devil made the turtles or their king because that would mean the devil also made the world, and that he would not accept. He hopes he is on the side of good, and decides that he must be. He is on a quest to save the princess, and surely that's a good thing. Now there is snow covering the land, and he slips and slides precariously down hills towards open crevices. He springs into the air, and bounces off a winged turtle to reach a higher cliff, slipping along the icy landscape. There is money everywhere, and although he picks up as much as he can, it never gets too heavy. This is because it is constantly disappearing from his pockets, going who knows where. All the plumber knows is that when he's found a lot of gold, it makes it easier to come back after he falls down a pit or gets hit by some spiky creature thrown from the sky. The more money he finds, the less he ends up in the place where one waits between continues. He hates that place with its tense anticipation, 
and so he looks everywhere for gold coins, or else green mushrooms, which both make the same music and have the same life-giving effect. Finally, he sees the castle in the distance. He's passed several fake ones on this way here, convincing replicas built on other worlds, but he knows that this is the real deal. The princess is there, and so is the turtle king. He enters. The plumber leaps across lava and disintegrating paths. He ducks under spikes, falling from ceilings, and kills every enemy in his path. His mouth, his stupid useless mouth, it is smiling. Soon he will save the princess. He eats a red mushroom and turns into a giant. He eats a flower and breathes fire. The turtle king must not defeat him. The music plays and the final fight begins, but the plumber cannot win. He dies until he runs out of lives, and then he waits for God to say continue. He waits for a long time, and so he knows that God is frustrated with him. He wants to say, you're the one controlling me. It's your fault, too. Give me one more chance, he prays, and I will do exactly as you say. I will jump when you say jump. I will run when you say run. I will hit anyone with my ass that you want me to hit. Please, just say the word and I shall be yours. God ponders and then says continue, or else he doesn't. The plumber saves the princess, or else the turtle king conquers everything. There is no way of knowing what God will do until the moment he does it. He prays and prays. It's all any plumber can do. The End Matt Bell lives in Saginaw, Michigan. His writing has appeared in many publications, including Hobart, Barrel House, Smokelong Quarterly, and McSweeney's Internet Tendency. He can be found online at mdbell.com. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright Bound Off and the Respective Authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories. 